consistency in the time you have available. So if you have 10 hours a week, make it the best, the best 10 hours a week you can possibly have with your sport. Make sure that it is achievable week in, week out. The frequency in which you do that training uh, in that 10 hours needs to be week in, week out. It can't go from eight hours to 12 hours to four hours to two hours. If you commit to it, the best athletes I've had have always had consistency in the hours they've had to be able to achieve their training. The Triathlon Show, 217. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview coach Dan Atkins, who is the head coach at the Gold Coast Triathlon Australia Performance Center. We had a really, really great chat on all things training that uh, do not apply just to the elite athletes that uh, Dan coaches, but really to any endurance athlete. And I think that any of you will find this discussion extremely useful and valuable. I certainly did and really enjoyed the chat I had with Dan. We'll get right to it after thanking our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. In a blog post Precision Hydration has that I'll link to in the show notes, uh, they reference a 2017 review paper where the sweat rates of a total of 500 athletes was investigated. And uh, this review paper found that 1 to 1.5 liters per hour is uh, a pretty normal or moderate sweat rate, but uh, the ranges of sweat rates uh, range from 0.5 liters per hour to just over 2.5 liters per hour, with a few outliers at uh, above 4 liters per hour as well. So you can see that there's uh, a big in inter-individual difference here. So I'll link to the article that Precision Hydration has on the topic called How to Measure Your Sweat Rate to Improve Your Hydration Strategy. And that article will uh, instruct you how to do just that, simply find out what your individual sweat rate is. And when you combine that with knowing what your sweat sodium content is estimated to be, which you can do by getting your hydration plan for free on precisionhydration.com, then you can really start to narrow down your hydration strategy and make it really work for you and your individual uh, attributes as uh, a sweater. So that will be linked to in the show notes. And if you want to try Precision Hydration's electrolytes, you can get 15% off with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. And uh, since uh, the racing season is uh, slowly but surely getting closer, uh, I thought I would mention that uh, for athletes that are racing early season races where the water temperatures might still be pretty darn cold, it's uh, good to mention that uh, Roka does not simply offer their normal wetsuit ranges with uh, the different levels of wetsuits, but actually they also have their Maverick Pro in a thermal wetsuit version, 
which is a fantastic option if you are one of those that are going to be racing in any race at any time in cold water. But uh, now that we're coming up to the early season for people in the Northern Hemisphere at least, it's uh, very much on the agenda for a lot of you, I'm sure. So uh, check out the Maverick Pro Thermal Wetsuit. Like all Roka wetsuits, it comes with their patented technologies, RS2 centerline buoyancy and arms up construction for optimal mobility. So a highly, highly developed and researched wetsuit that uh, is highly recommended. You can get 20% off your entire order, whether it's wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles and high-performance eyewear with the promo code TTS20 on roca.com. Now, without any further ado, let's hear the interview with Coach Dan Atkins. Welcome to that triathlon show, Dan. How are you doing? Michael, thank you. I'm really good, thank you. Um, Really, really happy to be here. Thanks for the offer. It's a pleasure to have you. Why don't you start by first introducing yourself to the listeners who may not know who you are? Yeah, thanks. Uh, My name is Dan Atkins. I'm an Australian high-performance triathlon coach. I work with our national system, uh, primarily focused on uh, major competition, which for us at the ITU draft legal level is uh, the Olympics. Um, Our second-tier major event which is every second, oh, sorry, every alternate second year to the Olympics, if that makes sense, is uh, the Commonwealth Games and obviously ITU World Championships every year, as long as as well as the WTS series. Um, and you're the, the head coach at uh, one of the performance centers and daily training environments over there in Australia. Yeah, that's right. I run the the performance center here on the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia. And I've been in this role for the last, uh, it's coming up to seven years now, believe it or not, how quickly time flies. And uh, our primary focus has been the development of Australian athletes, Australian athletes only. It's not what I'd call a centralised program. It's not something we've targeted specific athletes. It's just uh, I was employed to um, set up a program that was, based on the Gold Coast as a part of the Australian Institute of Sport, to which we have a facility here on the Gold Coast, and collaborate with uh, local universities as well in research and uh, development of athletes. So something uh, is a very privileged position that I've been in for the last uh, seven years. So just as a bit of context for those following the uh, the ITU circuit and the WTS, ra- WTS races and so on, uh, who are some of the athletes that you worked with that have come through at that uh, performance center or you are working with right now? Uh, currently, our roster is uh, 10 athletes in total. Um, uh, Matt Hauser, a, a young 21-year-old uh, ITU elite athlete who won the Junior World title in 2017. Um, and was on our Commonwealth Games team in 2018, uh, mixed team relay uh, athlete that uh, has done quite well over the years uh, is is one of our athletes, um, Jazz Hedgeland, who is a WTS level athlete, finished seventh this year in Edmonton, ninth in Edmonton, uh, sorry, in Montreal. Um, I also have... Uh, Two under 23s that finished fifth 
this or last year now in Lausanne, Kira Hedgeland in the women's and uh, Brandon Copeland in the men's. Um, as as well as I also have some para athletes, so my program is a little different to most where I have. Uh, I've streamlined it down now as we get closer to Tokyo to two uh, specific athletes, Katie Kelly and her guy Bri- Brianna Silk, who are the current Paralympic champions from Rio, and also in the PTVI. So that's one of the um, vision impaired categories. And also Lauren Parker, who is the current uh, para wheelchair world champion. So. Yeah, amongst that, I have some other athletes that are in either the under-23 program or I have one junior as well, which, uh, which who, who Charlotte Derbyshire, who got 20th at Worlds last year. So, yeah, we have a nice spread of what I like to call development athletes. Right, cool. So uh, the first thing that I wanted to discuss today is uh, your view on the demands of draft legal sprint and olympic distance races and even mixed relay that is now coming into the olympics this year uh and uh, so yeah what are the demands of this type of racing and the requirement for success both at the general level and also from uh, the perspective of each individual discipline yeah that's a that's a great question the the demands for me first and foremost is having the athletes available um it's a real key word for me is being available and it's something I've learned over the last 10 years of coaching within our national system is that uh, we had a history of probably pushing athletes too hard too soon. We've always had a rich history in Australia of of, uh, that word talent comes into it, which I'm not a fan of, but uh, talented athletes that have come through as young athletes because we've got the obviously the environment to produce triathletes with the, the sun and lots of uh, nice weather. So for me, in general, as long as my athletes are available, then they're, uh, they're capable of being coached. So draft legal racing obviously is very intense racing. It uh, is very technical, tactical and I like to think that we put a fair emphasis on the demands of competition, which is understanding race formats, uh, race courses, and uh, knowing when to peak. So what, what are our key events? And the, the issue, if I can call it that, that we have in Australia is that a lot of our selection races are done when the other side of the world is somewhat in their base phase or in their initial phase of training. So in Australia, we have a lot of key events down under which are, uh, have a lot of ITU points up for grabs and also a lot of selection up for grabs. So we have our continental championships uh, begin in two weeks' time for the para event and uh, start not long after that for our able body athletes in, in two or three weeks' time. So we have to get a wriggle on reasonably early. Um, so when we talk of the demands of racing, 
it's something I've had to learn to be very calculated in, and that is how do we plan to be good in February, March, April, but also sustain a long season through to world titles, which is generally August, September. So in general, uh, my number one goal is to get the athletes available, and that uh, is is a very long and complex answer to uh, how how we can we can have that happen. So, <clears throat> um, I guess with swimming, I come from a swim background as a coach. That was how I started my career as a as a coach, and I learned that reverse periodization was something that suited my style of coaching, but also suited the younger athletes that I developed. So we would start quite hard, quite early, and that was with what I call skills and drills. So a lot of the swimming we begin our phase of training in, which starts in late November, uh, which is probably a lot earlier than most other nations. Um, So I like to reverse periodize my swimming because I find we get a lot of conditioning from our swimming and the fact that we live in an environment where we can swim open water a lot, whether it be in the surf or lakes or canals. Uh, I like to sort of bang in, for want of a better term, some fitness into them. And uh, that's something I've always done, um, which is a little different and, and something that I've, I've followed through for the last sort of 15 years. Um, cycling is is. Is I've been very inquisitive about cycling over the years and definitely the trend of male triathlon, I believe, in ITU is that the bike is starting to really improve the levels of power outputs and pressure that's put on in the races. A uh, few nations have shown that uh, they're really emphasising that area. So slowly but surely we've really built up our volume and uh, the consistency in which we're we're training. So we've probably gone from uh, once upon a time sort of three key rides a week to probably four key rides a week. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they're incredibly intense, but key rides meaning there's some specificity around chasing some power targets. Power targets may be low, but at a sort of 85% of effort um, and again it's sort of getting best bang for buck and the old adage that nick time is what we used to call it back in my day when I was a triathlete having that nick time spending time in the saddle is very important and I've, I've sort of had a re- about face with that and now we're trying to really build up some volume and we're fortunate here on the Gold Coast that we have some good mountains and lots of hilly, quite um, gradient rides that we can take on board week in, week out. So I think probably for me riding is 80% strength. So with that uh, climbing and longer sustained rolling 8 to 15-minute turns with boys and girls that I coach to um, keep that race specificity there but also give them that that strength there on the bike um and running 
Well, running is something that uh, sometimes I have a tendency to let the group dictate the running um, in the sense that we focus early on on just simple kilometres, simple miles, if you, you want to call it, that uh, it's just about getting back in the groove of things. But uh, technically, I'm big on video feedback. I, I try to video every single run we do. I try to give the athletes ownership on what they're working on and some we come up with cues, so real skill acquisition style of running. We work on cues with each athlete and each athlete have an array of different cues that they're working on with their running. So the first four weeks of our preparatory phase is really around awareness, body awareness and um, movement patterns across the ground before we can really start doing the work because as we we know in our sport the running has the most impact on the body and we never run fresh we always run fatigued so that's a bit of a snapshot of how we work it and and obviously as we get closer to racing we'll we'll sharpen our tools and uh start trying to prepare to race Excellent. Yeah, I have a few follow-up questions here. First of all, with the availability, uh, can you give just one or two key factors that uh, that you consider when it comes to making sure that you have your athletes available? Well, we hear often that uh, endurance sport is about um, being able to be repetitive in your training Uh I've heard other people use the frequency of training. So how often are you turning up? How often are you utilizing the time you have to be able to train, whether that be an age group athlete or even an elite athlete? We, I believe we all have time to, uh, to work with uh, rather than time against. If time against tends to bring on pressure and stress and that tends to bring on injury and illness if if you want to ask me um so being available is multifaceted it's it's uh it's like a huge tree with different branches and each branch has its strengths and weaknesses and every now and then you've got to go out on that branch that that may be a little little less supportive than the other so As athletes develop, and a lot of my career has been around athlete development, I'm very fortunate that I have a lot of athletes that have been with me since they were young juniors, uh, something I feel very proud of that we've evolved. Uh, we haven't dissolved. We've, we've evolved athletes from juniors, young juniors, through to now targeting Tokyo Olympics this year, which is something I'm very proud of, and hopefully I can be there on the start line next to them. Um, but being available comes under nutrition. I'm a mat. I'm. I work hard with my staff around nutrition, and I'm of the belief that that's a a huge area that we can improve and and evolve with. Um, obviously, recovery in our sport is is the one of the the biggest factors, and recovery might mean. Um, spending 20 minutes on a roller post a training session, it might mean adding in another physiotherapy session once a week. So obviously re rehab and recovery is a massive part of it, but 
basically being able to turn up every day and 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 taking on what's set in front of you is is what I mean by being available. And uh, you'll have to excuse me for diving so deep, but it's uh, pretty rare to no have uh, some to have the, you, these WTS coaches on the podcast because that's uh, that's where I find that it's uh, quite difficult to even get contact details in the first place. So I'm going to make use of this opportunity. No problem. Uh, but when you mentioned uh, nutrition there, and we can do a lot to improve that, what specifically is it that we typically need to improve or the athletes that you work with typically need to improve? Is it just eating more or what, what are you referring to? Well, we're very fortunate in this day, Michael, as opposed to maybe 20 years where I came from as an athlete, and that is that uh, there are so many tests and um, body analysis we can we can study within each athlete and I guess this comes down to the individual and uh, understanding metabolic rate, understanding each athlete's metabolism rates is something that I've worked closely with with our Institute of Sport to understand, well, when this athlete turns up and they've had an hour, eight-hour sleep, how much have they burn in their sleep? So... Uh, some of our ITU athletes, they, they tend to burn more in their sleep, the more calories or kilojoules in their sleep than the average age group 38-hour-a-week, 15-hour-a-week trainer will burn. So uh, we have to educate the athlete that you need to eat more than the average, what we say in Australia, Joe Blow. So... Understanding that side of things has been an area that I've worked on. I'm, I'm not a real scientific coach. I like to think I'm more the artist. Um, I'm, I'm not the sort of bloke that will, will tear apart training peaks or look at Strava or any of those things and go, wow, look at the numbers of the power or the heart rate or this or that. But what I really work hard at is understanding, well, how many calories should this guy use intake during a three-hour ride so I can get him to a 5K threshold swim session in the afternoon so I can get him to turn up tomorrow morning and do a 15K run with five kilometres of hill in it? So it's all about thinking ahead of the session we're about to partake in. So we're really, we're real, I'm really, with along with my team, trying to educate the athletes in I believe a lot of stress fractures, a lot of injuries, a lot of immune system illnesses are coming not necessarily from overloaded training but nutrition strategies or lack of. So to for me it's it's understanding what each athlete is available. So I'm I'm happy to spend time investing time and money into understanding what everybody is born with and that's different you you can't train some of these things you can't uh you can't reconfigurate someone that has a high metabolic rate you can't it's impossible it's not the way that it's a genetic when they talk about genetic talent you know you might have someone that's born with two gifted triathlete parents but 
you're not necessarily going to be a great triathlete unless you train for it. However, if you're born with a high metabolism, then if you don't feed that metabolism, you're not going to be able to survive in our sport. It's a simple fact of the matter. So I'm not sure if that answered yeah, your question. Makes, but, uh, yes, it does. It does perfectly. And uh, and it's really interesting to hear. Uh, but, uh, but I would definitely agree that that's important. And I would argue that probably even for age groupers, even though uh they obviously in a lot of cases they're they're not anywhere near the caloric demands of elite athletes simply because of less training and in many cases uh, a lesser basal metabolic rate due to genetics and such but still that is something that uh, that they too and we too can can improve on and as you said thinking about in what state in what metabolic state we we come into the afternoon or evening session when we're doing our morning bike ride and it's not just about getting through this workout that we're in now but how are we going to to start the next workout and having that in mind and, and planning ahead so yeah i really appreciate that yeah no problem let's uh talk talk a little bit about uh, the training and, and and even some supporting strategies to uh, that you use so if we start very generally like what is the range of training volume that you will typically be be at with your kind of athletes okay uh, yeah, well, again, if I go back to where I started, I, I believe I have a really strong group of development athletes. So whilst Matt Hauser has uh, finished top, top, uh, what's he finished? top seven at a WTS and has won two world titles, one as an elite in the mixed team relay and one as a, a junior, um, it, I still feel we're only probably 60% towards his ceiling as far as uh, an aerobic endurance athlete. So I'm very um, – I try to be very aware of each of my athletes and I try to, I try to make sure that we, we don't ever hit that ceiling. Uh, I, I don't ever want to get to the point where the athletes can't get off the ground if, if we've had a demanding session. I want to make sure that, again, I'll, I'm going to say this a thousand times in this podcast, that, be, that they're available to turn up in the afternoon to be able to get through the next session because our sport must be mundane. It must be repetitive and it must be almost robotic in the way that we are able to give the best with what time we have available, whether that's 12 hours as a as an age group athlete or whether that's 30 hours as an elite athlete. We need to make sure that each each session has purpose and has uh, real strategies around what it is we're aiming to meet. So for me right now, if I'm, if you'd like me to talk about right now, our, our strategy is around uh, strength endurance. It's around creating that platform. So put in simple terms, again, I'm not a real scientific coach. I'm a pretty laid-back Aussie, and I like to think that when I coached Learn to Swim that I had to dumb things down to talk to little tiny three-year-olds how to swim. And if I talk in those terms, we're building a house. And if we're building a house right now, we're laying a slab of concrete to support the house. And that slab of concrete needs to have good a good steel structure underneath it needs to be 
absolutely solid to to handle cyclones it needs to be or or tornadoes or typhoons or uh, wherever you may live in the world it needs to be able to handle all those weather conditions so for me right now we are swim biking and running with absolute strength in mind so in the pool it might be uh, longer uh, sub sub so below threshold swimming but we'll always tap into remembering I said earlier I like to reverse periodize my swimming we'll always tap into that top end speed uh, I'm blessed the fact that I have young fast athletes that that like to go fast and I don't ever want them to lose touch with what they love about the sport because at the end of the day fun is what brought them to me and uh, a love of our sport I want them to enjoy what they do and if it means getting up at the end of a five kilometer swim and saying all right we're going to have a four by 50 relay um, but we have to tumble turn halfway along the pool and accelerate out head up freestyle on the way back just to make it fun then that's what I'll do. But what I'm tapping into is some real top-end speed uh, post a strength session. So we'll run under fatigue off hill reps. We'll do some tempo running. And tempo at the moment might be 10 seconds a kilometre slower than what it will be in two months' time. Well, that's what I'm hoping anyway. As well biking, uh, we're in a strength phase, which can be quite arduous, you know, riding hill reps that are, you know, we're doing 1,500, 2,000 metres of climbing in a session. That's, that's a lot of climbing. So how can I keep them invigorated through this time of year? Well, we might do some 15-second full gas power surges off a track stand, off a set of lights. So I'm trying to incorporate the technical side of our sport learn how to track stand, learn how to accelerate off the off the set of lights. So uh, I guess some strategies for me are keeping the fun aspect in there, reverting back to the person you were when you first started the sport, to going, well, what are the demands of competition day in, day out? What are the things that I can keep in our training that's not going to impact too much to be able to get through the 25, 30 hours a week of training that we do? And as you get closer to the to the racing season, you, will you start to then uh, pull the intensity or push the intensity up towards race intensity, possibly even above it? Or what will that look like? Uh, absolutely. Um, again, as I said, the Australian summer is 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 uh, is going to be an interesting one this year. Twenty twenty, going into the Olympics, we have uh, athletes that need to perform by April. In Australia um, so uh, I'm not the sort of person that will put someone on the start line and say you need to do well in this race without giving them some awareness of what they're capable of so the intensity in training for me throughout a week I will sit down and I will look at the program and I will highlight some key sessions within that key session we may have some targeted race-specific uh, opportunities. And that could be three times a week. That could be four times a week. Uh, this this week, I think we, we are going to touch on uh, seven 
critical pieces of work that we will touch on race specifics. Now, to put that in context, tomorrow morning is going to be four by 15 second pieces of sprint work that is race specific. Now that, you know, we may have a boy that can average a thousand watts for that. So that's very high if you understand wattage. It may be 800, 700, 800 watts for a female, which is very high. So I keep the intensity there at all times because I believe a lot of athletes find that fun uh, as long as you don't overdo it and you don't do it all the time. And we've all seen and we've all been a part of the culture of going faster more often is the way to go, but that that has changed in the last five years, I believe. So, But I also believe that we need to touch on it often uh, but not necessarily for a long period of time, just to break up the monotony of of the work that we have to do per week. So, am I hearing you right when when you're talking about intensity that uh, that you do include it frequently and often, but uh, no single session is going to be a killer session, or at least very few of them is going to be a killer session with the athlete laying on the ground after a hard track set. You always want to. Uh, keep something left in the tank is that what you're saying or if uh, you're not then please uh, clarify no absolutely we we probably um and this is the honest truth we probably would only leave those uh stretchy stretcher sessions if you want to call them that where you've got to wheel the athlete off or shovel him off the dirt probably only three or four times a year that's a year uh Again, because I want them to be able to turn up tomorrow and the next day or even this afternoon or lunchtime or whatever it is. And I do not understand how you can physically do that in our sport, that those sessions are done to maximal effort. Uh, I used to coach 50-metre sprinters in swimming, a butterflyer that that went to – a very high level and I could get him to do it very, very small periods of time and he was a sprinter. So I don't understand how we can get our endurance athletes to do that. But, yes, only three or four sessions a year I will say this is all on. Um, Yeah, and they will be very probably uh, we'll look at 10 to 16 days out from competition, we may do two two of those sessions from a major competition. Um, they just can't recover from them effectively, I find. That's that's my theory. Yeah. And, and when you're saying that this has changed in the last five years, is it that you changed your philosophy or do you, do you <laughs> see a general change in the triathlon community and coaches, coaches world round are uh, catching up to... Uh, to this knowledge yeah. now? Uh, well, uh, I, I sort of giggled a little there because I probably have changed my own philosophy on that, Michael, a lot. Um, inadvertently, I felt that, and this is probably going more than five years ago, probably eight years ago, I, I felt that harder was better and we're going to create these superhumans that are going to be able to handle with uh, – 
you know, sustained track session week after week after week. And a lot of that was driven from my former life of a age group club-based coach that had elite athletes in there as well. And you're sort of trying to facilitate programs that helped 30 athletes, 40 athletes, 50 athletes, as opposed to the 10 that I coach now. So you look back then and you go, wow, how, how did we, how did we keep people on the paddock? Um, how do we, how are we able to um, keep athletes sustainable when we were running them faster than they were racing all the time? Um, so over time, I just learned that it was, you know, a, a, a good, solid, hard, tart and run track would take four or five days to get over. So that's no use to me now if I've got to train in another 10 hours time that's no use to me at all um especially if you want to get something out of it so i've certainly changed my tune and uh thankfully i've had a lot of good people in my corner to be able to advise me and help me and evolve me and and a lot of good reading and good study has helped me also understand that endurance sport is about turning up it's not about absolutely smashing yourself into the ground where you need a shovel to pick you up yeah and uh there was one other follow follow-up question that i had there but i i just forgot that i had it at the tip of my tongue so uh, let's move on to the next one that i uh, was uh, wanted to get into if you as much as you can i understand if you don't want to uh to reveal all the details but can you explain in now as we're talking it's the 10th of january today mm-hmm. what is the week that you're in looking like the structure of it like how many sessions in each discipline and what are the the basic format of those sessions and and so on it's 10th of january uh, we are in week eight of our uh, reintegration um for the 2020 year so again as i mentioned earlier australia tend to start earlier with uh, we have four um, reasonably high level races uh, here in Australia starting in uh, late February so we are in what I would like to call our second period of training the first period led up to Christmas was five weeks uh, six weeks sorry of a good baseline you know just getting out there understanding how our body's moving how has our body reacted to the 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 break that every athlete needs to have mentally physically it's the worst thing an endurance athlete can do um because tendons shorten muscles you know shrink um weight goes on weight goes off um so it's a it's a tricky tricky period i find i have more injuries in that first six weeks than I do pretty much the whole year. So it's a really stressful time for me as a coach and uh, uh, dare I say a manager of a program. It's um, So I'm happy to present that I've got all my athletes, here we go again, available. So I feel I've done a good job in that first block. This second block now, we are now really focusing on strength. So... Uh, we are doing some testing as well. Um, we're doing some heat acclimation testing. 
uh, I won't go too much into that. If, if the studies prove to be successful, I'd, I'd happy to come on here and reveal the study. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're doing some really cool stuff with Bond University, um, which is excellent for me to be a part of a university that's really open-minded and they love my what-if questions um, that I've got no theory behind, but I just pose these questions and they find a way to try and test it. Um, so, but in the water, we've gone away from a little bit more top end. We've begun open water swimming already. Um, obviously Australia, especially the Gold Coast is, is very hot and humid. Um, unfortunately the rest of the country is, uh, under blaze and it's a lot of our country on fire at the moment, which is very upsetting. But, uh, thankfully here on the Gold Coast, because of our humid climate, we we are protected somewhat from that but we are absolutely always 24 7 in a heat and humidity training environment it's currently 29 degrees celsius uh and around 75 percent humidity so it's it's sticky so that is a natural environment for us which allows us to acclimatize and I believe really improve our aerobic capacity. That's our weapon. Uh, that's our weapon. So I like to utilize that. And um, slowly but surely, we're building up our volume. And the intensity is, as I said, there's certain touch points throughout the run. We've, begin, we've begun running some hills, um, short, sharp, sort of 200-meter hills where the athletes can still hold form, anything longer than sort of, 90 seconds to two minutes at some sort of pace I find athletes fall away um, so I don't want that so we're very cadence and posture focused with the running there the biking is very much um, around the strength endurance but then tapping into some top end power because again as I mentioned earlier the athletes love doing that they love to go hard so that may only be 10 seconds 15 seconds of absolute power but something I learned from some um, cycling coaches that are or cycling physiologists that are high up in the pro tour sort of stuff so yeah that's sort of uh, where we're at but um, yeah privileged to be here where we are being the environment we have right now. What's a typical number of swims, bikes, and runs per week, or what's your uh, number this week, for example? Uh, this week will be five swims, one open water, front end specific, so focusing on the first 200 meters of a race, uh, as well as some technical, tactical skills around turning cans. Um, that was this morning, actually. That was our first swim session in the open water. Um Uh, we've done four other sessions as well in the water, which are around aerobic conditioning. Um, the bike tomorrow will be our fourth ride of the week. We'll only do the four rides this week, but that'll be upwards of around 350 kilometers for the week. So in general terms, it's not over the top, but again, I have development athletes and I'm trying to balance out and I don't want to hit the ceiling. So we are, I'm very conscious of, of the amount of work and volume that I'm giving them right now so that they're able to sustain the whole season up until September. 
running, we are up around the six sessions a week. Uh, 80% of that is aerobic running. We do one session a week, which is very focused on technique and drills. And um, I'm always looking for athlete feedback. So again, I mentioned earlier about athlete cues and um, who is it that they want to look like? Who do they want to look like when they run? Who is it that they've seen running and go, I could look like that, that moves well? Um, so I allow them that input. Um, and the, what have I missed out there? And gym. So kilometers, under, kilometers under run, roughly? Uh, run, what, what uh, it varies from uh, 40 kilometers a week for the junior to um, around, we're only up to about 60 kilometers a week at the moment. So not not high volume, but um, again, I, I only mentioned to them yesterday, they're all looking good. So when we're doing 60 kilometers a week and they're looking great, I know it's probably time to probably load it up a little bit. So um, we'll be looking to load that run volume over the next four weeks. Yeah, and uh, 60 kilometers of deliberate practice with good, great form, great posture. That's absolutely. Uh, that's still like a, a lot of good training. Absolutely. Um, so, so absolutely. total total number total number of hours for the week will be roughly what? Uh, they're probably around the 25 hours a week at the moment. That's inclusive of uh, gym strength and conditioning sessions, which we do probably more than most. I'm very focused on um, functional strength patterns and uh posterior chain and getting their 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 transverse core and uh and, sorry intrinsic core and and so forth it's a critical piece for us especially the last sort of 20 percent of the run i believe that posture and form is everything so we have a very targeted program around that so they're probably doing six hours a week of of strength and conditioning as well as the 20-odd hours a week of general swim bike running. Mm. So uh, for strength and conditioning, what would be a few favorite exercises that uh, that you prescribe? Um, well, everything we do in the gym is, is focused back to uh, a swim bike run. So my absolute favorite exercise is um, pull-ups, chin-ups, very, very slow, very controlled uh it absolutely works two-thirds of your body uh especially for running swimming and biking posture on the bike um you know holding holding good strength through your core your glutes your hamstrings on the bike through to posture on the run as i mentioned i focus more my planning around the last say two kilometers of the run uh and in swimming obviously that initial phase of catch in the water to the you know if you're not in the front 200 of any swim at an itu level nowadays you're pretty much done so uh i i like to yeah chin-ups is my go-to that's that's one part <laughs> yeah that's perfect and uh now i remember what the the other follow-up that i forgot earlier was and that was in terms of when we we're talking about intensity and uh, not wanting to hit the ceiling uh, with with that either, not not wanting to go to the well. How do you 
control that? Do you prescribe? Do, do you prescribe sessions or efforts with RPE, heart rate, mm. pace? Do you have specific yeah. limits, or how do you work yeah. with that? We used to use up until, and this is something I used for fifteen years, was uh, training zones, basically one to five, uh, one meaning getting out of bed in the morning, walking to the toilet to five maximal effort. Uh, but I've, this year um, we're working on RPE completely, wholly and solely. So I'm finding that we've we've got a better range with RPE one to ten. So you know, your aerobic conditioning might be five to seven, uh, which gives me a bit better scope. Um, with that, we hand it, it just, it correlates better for me with heart rate. So uh, heart rate is always based between, i.e. 160 to 170 might be RPE six to eight. So, but then the next person 160, 170 might be eight to nine. So it takes a lot of work to understand each athlete's heart rate, but it's something I'm very, very um, invested in to understanding. I think it is the truest form of of understanding the the human engine um, that we're all built with. Um, so educating the athletes on those two pure training sort of zones is critical to our, our our longevity and our evolution. Do you have any athletes that uh, you have to really educate a lot on, uh, you know, the type of athlete that always wants to go faster and <laughs> see the pace be better than the last week yeah. or the power be better than the last week? And how do you educate, like, the, the process thinking and, and not uh, – seeing that as like the the main driver of success necessarily Uh, yeah yeah absolutely and i I don't think i'm alone in in my program with this that uh, i very 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 rarely tell my athletes they need to go faster i'm always telling them that they need to hold back that their form's fallen away or their uh you know their their numbers are just not producing what I'm after or or what they should be after and they're getting caught up in the moment. Um, Again, I have a lot of young males. I have a group of five young males that are between the ages of uh, 19 and 23. So there's a lot of testosterone there. There's a lot of alpha wolf pack mentality there and there's always one wolf that wants to stand out more than the other and and each of them have a dominant factor in their training. So it uh, comes back to the art of coaching, and that's that's communication. That's being able to maybe not in the session. Sometimes you've you know with these alpha males, you just got to let it run its course. If you if you try and pull the wolf pack up, you uh, you can you can get your head bit off. So sometimes you got to let it run its course, and then you've probably got to pull them aside later on and say, hey, listen, and you've got to make sure you've got the the information there to, to prove your point or not. I don't like to say prove your point, to to state your, your claim here that, you know, we could probably be better here. And, um, you know, none of, none of, neither of my five males are the same in, in, in every facet. They're all different and uh, 
you most definitely, most definitely I'm telling them, actually, we could, we could probably slow that down and be a more efficient, more economic athlete if we did it this way. So it's education and it's, um, it's communication is the biggest thing and not ramming it down their throat. You ram it down the 22-year-old's throat, he's only going to bark back at you. And that's, that's not productive for longevity as a coach-athlete relationship, that's for sure. Mm. That leads in nicely to discussing the, the daily training environment and the group uh, aspect of your training. How important do you think that is for the athletes to be in that environment and training with that group? Ah, uh, it's it's something we've worked really hard at. It's something that I pride myself on is that we have a, a good culture within our group. Um, we're quite open um, as far as um, I'm probably too open. Sometimes my uh, performance director says to me, I need to be a little bit more close shop, but I I like to show people what we have. We are an Australian performance center. And uh, we have a lot of younger athletes around that uh, uh, idolize our group and um, they look up to our group. And I think it's important to expose our group to the younger generation of athletes coming through to put a little bit of upward pressure on the guys I coach. So the training environment is something that uh, we work very closely at. I was an ex-rugby um, league player and uh that was my passion and i was hopefully going to represent my country at that sport and team sport was something i grew up in and around and uh i'm trying to create a team but now uh, a team of individuals so we work hard at trying to make sure that uh the individual gets what they need and obviously that's time consuming to be able to you know, stand there at a run session and you've got 10 people but you've got six different sessions going and you just see them disperse and you may not see them for five to ten minutes and then they run past and then you don't see another one for another 10 minutes and whatever. So, But that's necessary because no two athletes are the same or no two athletes are at the same point. So I, I love the sessions where we can all come together and we're all doing the same thing but they're very, very rare. And uh, that comes down to to what each athlete needs. But our daily training environment is built around a, a common common set of values that we've all uh, bought into. And obviously, number one is respect um, and honesty. And uh, you know, I I'm going to say this, Michael, but I'm not sure it's going to – you might have to blurt it out, but we have a no dickhead policy. Um, so excuse me if that's a little little out there to say, but I, I, don't, I don't do high school yard uh, tormenting or bullying or anything like that. So we make sure that we're all in there doing the same thing. We're all very respectful of each, each other. And that's, that's something that I, I value very dearly. Yeah, no, that makes, makes perfect sense. And uh, you already kind of answered my, my next question, which is how you include the individualized individualization of the athlete in that group training environment. And it sounds like you do it, a lot does that happen just organically because you prescribe the rpe of the session and each athlete 
chooses their own uh, their own intensity based on that, or do you have some sort of uh, baseline testing as well, maybe in the background that that also uh, sort of defines how how hard you want that RPE for the athlete to be? That if they are at a level further on in their development point, then you might have them go slightly harder for a session than another, and and so on. How if you go a little bit deeper into the individualization and how how mm. that plays into the training. Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and it's a very complex question to answer. But however, the at the end of the day, the the testing we do is very much in the initial phase of of um, of what we do. So it gives me baseline an opportunity to see where we are at a baseline, see whether we've improved anything. Um, in the athlete in the last 12 months or it gives me an understanding of who you know I, I've taken on a couple of new athletes in the last year so it's understanding of what they're capable of potentially um, but it does organically happen um, uh, to go back to what you mentioned earlier about to do to, to, to some athletes just go beyond what they're probably physically capable of absolutely um, but it gives me an argument or a discussion point later on to to talk about how we can be better the next session. So, again, um, the art of coaching is something that I probably am, well, I know I'm a lot more uh, schooled in rather than uh, the the science of it, and I would never replace that. I would never change that for the fact that me understanding my athletes well enough um, from the way they walk into the training session to the way they even say hello to the way they uh to what they're wearing to to what how much pride they've taken in their personal appearance to turn up to training to how they carry their posture to know that okay so this may be a struggle this session and you know there's been some sessions where i've gotten someone out of the pool and i've said and what are i saying is it a foreign language to you today or is what I'm saying just who too hard for you to comprehend today and 99 out of 100 times they'll just feel comfortable enough to let me know that there's other things going on so and that might be personal uh, something in life it might be physical it might be anxiety as we head towards races which is always a big thing um, so the management of the athlete very much has to be individual, not necessarily a different training session, but around how they go after that session to get the best possible outcome for themselves. Yeah, that makes perfect sense sense to me. I mean, rigidity is something that can be quite dangerous, and the the absolute gold standard is obviously to have the coach on deck at all times and be able to adjust as needed depending on the individual athlete's needs and that's something that's body language and uh, and other things can you can pick up from that that absolutely. you can't pick up just from reading their training files yeah yeah absolutely. Uh, so uh, the the other thing that i wanted to ask is since you also have the uh, the para athletes in your squad is that something that uh, the athletes uh, of both groups the para athletes and the able-bodied athletes have uh, found that they can learn from each other perhaps because i assume that the para athletes might have some 
different skills, different mindset, perhaps that uh, that might be useful if uh, if it uh, translates to what the able-bodied athletes do, and vice versa. Yeah. Well, the first thing that the able-bodied athletes need to understand is the para athletes' stories, and that is how they came to have their. Um, a disability, and I, I hate saying that word because it's not a disability. It's a, I believe it's something that they've just got and we deal with, you know, different to athlete mood. Uh, so understanding their stories has been empowering in my program. And it's something that I put my hand up to have a crack. That's another Aussie term. Have a crack at trying to coach. And I was looking for a new challenge for myself as a coach and, again, probably taking on more than I needed, but uh, it was an opportunity for me to test myself and to see uh, basically, well, it was to test myself. And how we work it is that we integrate and we uh, a side by side. So for the better part, yes. Uh, this morning we had Lauren Parker, who's the world champion in the wheel class category, uh, wheelchair category, and uh, Katie Kelly, who is the PTVI Olympic current Paralympic champion, swimming side by side with our able body program. And uh, I set different challenges so that it integrates well. So they may start 15 seconds ahead of the main group and uh, we play the old uh, rabbit and the hare, so rabbit and the bloody, you know, chaser sort of mentality, go and get them boys, go and get them girls, chase them down and it pushes a new level out of the, the Paris squad. And But at the same time, there's an absolute respect. I, I stood back watching uh, Kai Wild, one of my under-23 athletes, watching intently. Lauren Parker do her brick session this morning on the chair and the push chair and it was 30 degrees hot as heck hot it was 30 degree water and here she is pounding this brick session he was in awe of what she was doing and uh, he almost looked at me with a filthy look as if to say you're making her work too hard but the the power in that was that they're invested able-bodied athletes are invested in my para-athletes and we are united as one. There is no able-bodied para-triathlon squad. That was what we used to be called. We were the national under-23 development para-triathlon program. Uh, I had a problem with that and I changed it and thankfully Justin Drew, our performance director, said, oh, that doesn't sit well with me. You will be now the performance, the national performance centre or the Performance Centre, Gold Coast, Triathlon Australia. And uh, I think that typifies who we are and who we're about. And uh, we're learning from each other. And obviously the paratriathlon are learning how to be elite triathletes. And uh, the able-bodied guys are learning some life lessons, which is pretty powerful. Mm, yeah, that's uh, really fantastic to hear. And in terms of you as a coach, uh, have you learned things from uh, – taking on this new challenge of uh, coaching the para-athletes, like, for example, teaching 
technical cues to perhaps uh, visibility impaired athletes and so on or any just nugget really that you've picked up on how to coach better that you can now also apply with the able-bodied athletes Mm, uh, uh, every day every session there's something that uh we discuss as a team uh, i try not to over dictate to the the para program what I think they should do just because I'm a high-performance able-bodied athlete, uh, coach, sorry. It's more we collaborate on certain aspects of, uh, um, you know, I was privileged to help Katie Kelly build her new road bike and have huge ownership on how to uh, come up with a bike that I felt would help her through Tokyo. Um, So, Thinking outside the square with geometry, um, the fact that there was two people on the bike, not one, um, researching different tyres to which, interestingly enough, the tyres that I'm, I've am i put on her race wheels are now the tyres I'm in asking a lot of my able-bodied guys to get because the you know the the fact that these tires stick well to the road um, because there's two people on the bike instead of one, I've sort of gone well, geez, that's going to work well on everyone's bike. So that's a simple uh, simple example, but uh, understanding on Lauren's hand cycle aerodynamics differences and you know when I think of her bike, I think of a Formula One car as opposed to a standard UCI legal road bike. And where are the gains we can make in this machine that uh, we throw to the ITU and go, hey, we want to do this. What's the chances of doing this? And they go away and try and give us a solution to our um, inquisitiveness. So, yeah, it's it's really, really cool to um, because the tech side of it with Para is way, way more than in able body you know when you talk about um uh amputees and their running um leg and stuff like that which i've i've been i've worked with and stuff like that there's way more that you have to think outside the square with um that as opposed to able body most definitely mm, got it uh, going back a bit to uh, the coaching questions uh, on, in terms of the, the planning and periodization, uh, one thing that I want to ask as well is you've had the chance now to to be with this squad uh, all the way through one from one Olympic and now building up to to the next. So how do you plan the the long term uh, training and periodization? during that uh, quadrennial, uh, the Olympic quadrennial? How, what goes into that and how do you think about that planning? Um, it, I'm not sure there's a lot of planning that goes into it. I fly by the seat of my pants a little bit sometimes, which, uh, you know, isn't real scientific. I have some smart people around me that try and pull my head in a little bit and try and get me to be a little bit more thoughtful with things. But uh, in Australia, we tend to work on two years, not four years. Um, whilst the Olympics is every four years, we also have a major competition, which is the Commonwealth Games, which is every two years. So for me, who can be a little A-type now and then and find it hard to settle down and get into a routine, 
uh, every two years is something I can keep focused on. So I tend to work on a two-year cycle, not a four-year cycle. Um, so for me, it's about trying to be the absolute best we can be in lineup with the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games. And that tends to take a little bit of pressure off the fact that, uh, let it be known, the Olympics, there's nothing bigger, nothing more um, serious for us than the Olympics, but the Commonwealth Games allows us to to actually come up with strategies that uh, can help us towards the Olympics. So what we worked on for 2018 um, has allowed me to continue on in the lead up to Tokyo. And um, I, the last four years I've, I've um, worked um, more with altitude as opposed to just heat and humidity. Um, I've pretty got a pretty good grasp on that. I've got some good people around me that help me with heat and humidity, and I'm a massive believer that it is of equal value to altitude, uh, has equal responses. So that's, again, our natural environment, heat and humidity, but uh, altitude is something I've played with since um, before the Commonwealth Games in 2018, and that's something, obviously, I want to continue on. So that's... I sort of plan more around my altitude blocks than most other things. And how often would you go to altitude? Uh, we will go to altitude probably once a year, but we will do altitude blocks upwards of three times a year. So we might use altitude tents uh, and do altitude-specific training sessions in a controlled environment, which we have the luxury of being able to utilize. So. Um, very fortunate that uh, we can access that in Australia. Unfortunately for us, we were about to head off to our first altitude block later this month, but uh, unfortunately with the Australian fires that I'm sure everyone's aware of, that has stopped us from doing that um, because the area we were going, which is the ski fields in New South Wales, have uh, has stopped us from being able to do that. So... Um, but we will adapt to that and consider using altitude tents and um, specific altitude sessions in that period as well. Um, so two, probably two targeted sessions, two targeted periods a year, most definitely. Yeah. And within a two-year cycle with the Commonwealth Games and the Olympics, then in the two-year cycle, is there any market difference in what you, what what the year and the training looks like from one year to the next, or are they, are they more or less the same with some perhaps like a, a little bit of more specificity or like peaking and tapering, of course, for the real major competition, but uh, but not that much difference in the more preparatory based training phase, or or is it actually a big difference, for example, holding back a bit on the training in the first year and then like building up through the the major competition year or what's your take mm. or how do you work with that? Well, I think uh, with any major competition, it is dependent on the athletes as far as how do they come off that critical period. So in any uh, high performance program, you may be fortunate enough to have athletes that have gain selection and have been fortunate enough to go off to these competitions You may have athletes that missed out on selection, so you have to manage that uh, state of 
um, emotion. So I always uh, tend to take time to reflect post any big competition and have uh, after the Commonwealth Games, I made sure I had two weeks off pretty much straight away to gather my thoughts and recollect myself on where my program was and how we were going to rebuild. Uh, and it's again, comes down to the individual athlete and making sure that they're comfortable knowing that, uh, I mean, this year, or last year, for example, we had the test event that led two weeks later into our world title. Um, collectively, we had a, our program had a really good world title, but for the athletes that went to the test event, them carrying on that intensity and that quality of of mindset into a major competition was near impossible. It was impossible of me to ask them to keep the hammer down leading into a world title. It was ludicrous of me to think that they could maintain that because of that state of emotion so I guess a long-winded answer but it it comes down to the individual and uh, there is obviously our nation will always set out as far as the selection policy go these are the targeted events this is how you gain automatic selection if you don't gain automatic selection then this is the period in which you can be able to nominate or be nominated to come up for selection. So it's like a good game of chess. I think you've got to put all your pieces in front of you. You've always got to think probably two two moves ahead and strategize around the individual of what's the best for that individual, where should they go, what is the best quality of field they'll be chasing, who are they coming up against. We have a bad habit in Australia of trying to compete against ourselves and chasing the green and gold uniform rather than tracing the race. And uh, I've tried to make sure that in my planning we're chasing the targeted selection rather than just be the best Australian because the best Australian at world titles for our females was uh, something in the 20th and then 25th or 26th not necessarily world-class performances, um, but they were the first and best, second best Australian. So we've got to change that mindset to um, be up for key periods of time. Yeah. We're approaching the end here. Uh, I have one final question before the rapid-fire questions, and that is it's a two-part question. Uh, so the first part of it is if you could give one key piece of advice for athletes listening and specifically developing athletes that uh, want to make it to a high performance level even to the olympic level what would that be uh it would be consistency in the time you have available so if you have 10 hours a week make it the best the best 10 hours a week you can possibly have with your sport make sure that it is achievable week in week out the frequency in which you do that training uh, in that 10 hours needs to be week in, week out. It can't go from eight hours to 12 hours to four hours to two hours. If you commit to it, the best athletes I've had have always had consistency in the hours they've had to be able to achieve their training. They've always gotten results. 
Um, so whether you work 40 hours a week with a family or, you know, or more, if you can get a coach that understands what you do in life and set a plan based around the time you have available and make sure you give absolutely everything to that time you have available. I think you already answered the second part of my question, which was the same question, but for the age groupers. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think you summed it up for everybody. So, Well, I think it doesn't matter whether you're Olympic level athlete or uh, age grouper or beginner, whatever it is. If you've got five hours, make it the best five hours. If you've got 30, make sure that whole 30 is 30 hours and not 28 hours. Yeah, that, it makes total sense. I agree. So uh, let's uh, wrap up with the rapid fire questions. And these are short, uh, 15 okay. seconds or less. So uh, it's a challenge, yep. but uh, we are starting with what's your favorite book, blog or resource related to triathlon? Uh, okay. Well, that, that book is Applied Sports Physio- uh, Psychology. It's a textbook that I have with me. It's almost my Bible. And what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? my own physical health and who's somebody in triathlon or endurance sports that you look up to and admire um i will say darren smith and uh, michael ball who's uh, one of australia's best swimming coaches all right thank you so much dan i've really really appreciated this learned a lot and uh, yeah it's great to hear these um these uh, insights from people at the very top of the sport so so thanks again it's uh, a real pleasure to to have you and hear all you have to have to teach thanks michael i appreciate the opportunity thank you so much all right i really hope that you enjoyed that interview you can find the show notes on that and I will link to some related episodes with other uh, high-performance coaches at uh, the draft legal uh, on the draft legal triathlon scene. And those are Adil Tweiten and Joel Filial with his squad of athletes from a wide range of countries. In next episode or next Monday, I interview Andy Blow from our sponsor Precision Hydration on the latest developments in hydration. So that will be really interesting stay tuned for that and uh, if you want to check out the products and services we offer on scientifictriathlon.com ranging from ready-made training plans all the way up to individual uh, coaching big thanks to our sponsors precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com get a free hydration plan or check out their blog post that i'll link to on how to perform your sweat rate testing and take 15% off your entire order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear, and get 20% off your order with the promo code TTS20. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart, and keep loving triathlon.